0: we all set on fixed tracks to color our choices and decisions. In the past few years, we've seen pushback on these default paths. How do these new models of thinking intersect with innovation, entrepreneurship, the creative class, and Austin? We discuss all this and more on today's episode with Paul Millard. Paul is an independent writer, freelancer, coach, and digital creator. He's written online for many years and has built a growing audience of curious humans from around the world. He spent several years working in strategy consulting before deciding to walk away embrace a pathless path. He's fascinated about how our relationship to work is shifting and how more people can live lives where they can thrive. Paul, welcome to the Austin Next podcast.
1: Thanks, Jason. So I read the book. At the high level, how would you describe the pathless path? The pathless path is essentially the story of my life, so it's easy to talk about. It's sort of my sense making of shifting away from playing status games and prestige games and the career game to trying to carve my own path, which after quitting my job in 2017 was a lot harder than I imagined and a lot more disorienting than I imagined. And I think the way I like to make sense of things is really just go to the sort of ground truth, first principles and try to figure out what is going on make sense of it in my own terms, and then start remixing and experimenting around the edges. And so The Pathless Path is really my attempt to find a new story that could sort of shape the next chapter of my life after I left full-time employment. And I'm sure we'll dive into my journey a little more. But yeah, it's kind of a book of my inspirations and remix and synthesize in a way that I thought would be useful and helpful to others. And Yeah, the book is The Path is Path. It's already more than 4X sold its first year in the second year, which is kind of crazy. I think it's sort of formed this cult following, which I can't fully explain, but is also not surprising in the same sense, because I think I was seeing a lot of these trends emerging in 2017 to 2020, but then really accelerating during the pandemic.
0: Well, that was going to be when you're seeing it kind of accelerating and with technology and content creators and all these kind of different avenues opening up the pandemic kind of said, okay, people are sitting at home, whether through shutdowns, whether through whatever, and asking themselves, is this the right, you know, no pun intended, is this the right path? Right. And that kind of continued through 21 and 22. And now we're kind of getting into a new moment. So is that kind of why you're seeing your hypothesis, why it's, kind of catching on even more so now because as you said usually it's kind of the hits big and then kind of tapers off over time.
1: I think what's happening is a little more subtle and harder to explain and sort of a here's what's happening like quick hit takeaway. But but I need my sound bite. Come on it's it's, got to be that quick hit right? I think what's happening is what I experienced myself was a slight dissatisfaction that grew over time in my career sort of this question of like, okay, I'm making good money. This is like not so bad, but like, is this all there is? And I think what happened during the pandemic is that went from a personal private conversation that people felt ashamed to have publicly, to one that more people started having publicly. And then when people started seeing other people have this conversation, oh, what is the role of work in my life? What do I want to do? How do I want to spend my adult life? Others sort of took that as, oh, I can talk about this, right? And I've been saying my book is having this 50 shades of gray effect. It's sort of a fake excuse to talk about a topic. It's like the book made me talk about it. I'm not actually generating this topic. It's like, hey, here's this book. Let's talk about what Paul said. I'm not bringing this up. I'm not making you feel weird and (laughs) uncomfortable. It's Paul. And I'm happy to play that role. So I think that's part of what's happening as well.
0: I also wonder if, you talked about this even before in 2017, is that I'm moving away from the status for a second, games, but more on very defined and easy to run tracks, right? I know Peter Thiel has talked a lot about this. I mean, even in my own life, I've gone through, I'd say, large scale pivots, more so because of a journey of finding myself less so than a, I didn't like this game or that game. I know for me, I've been very path driven, you know, and to a detriment in that since seventh grade, I wanted to be, you know, I was gonna play mad scientist and this is what I was gonna do. And so went into college to get a PhD and then started working in a lab and I was like, wow, This sucks. I don't want to do this. And I always joke, like, so I married a PhD instead. But it was end up being that you have these kind of visions of the path and what it is that you want to be doing. And then so for me, I got lucky then and then ended up getting a job in PR for life science and got exposed to the business side of it and made that kind of transition. So one is like you have these kind of defined paths that are, this is how it's supposed to work, and you go and you understand that. And then the second point is, I think what you're saying is, okay, there's that structure of the path. And then there's, is this the fulfillment side, which is, am I getting the things that I want out of the money, the trophy, the status that comes along with these parts? I mean, as you said in the book, you know, you were at McKinsey, you were at kind of these really high level, high status types of jobs. And, you know, you can talk about like how you didn't seem to be getting what you wanted. You got sick, like, Walk through that kind of part of the, the the moment for you
1: yeah, I call this the default path. The default path is the story people grow up with that says here's what you do to be a successful adult, and for the most part, that's a pretty simple story. It's like go to school, get good grades, get a job dot dot dot, retire, like maybe start a family along the way. It doesn't really account for the ups and downs that people naturally experience in life, so My argument is that for the most part, people are going through life unscripted while trying to map their unscripted life to a story in their head about how they're supposed to be spending time. And this is a new phenomenon. So if you look at how people think about their lives, it wasn't until mass media and movies and television that people started thinking about their lives as a story. And I don't even think we realize this is happening because everyone alive today grew up in a time of media and storytelling and movies and TVs. So people struggled to realize this. A lot of our conception of like how we're supposed to behave and look and what we're supposed to do comes from like random dude on a movie, like working in a job, in a career, in an office. And it's like, that's what you do, right? And then we pair that with, this is what we saw our parents do. But the problem is the world is changing rapidly. And so you alluded to this before. People are creating online, doing all these things. The internet literally changed everything in our modern life. But we pretend as if this like sort of factory mindset, put your head down, work for 40 years. Playbook is still like the only playbook. It can work really well for some people. And some people might be psychologically wired to thrive on that kind of path. But one, there are more possibilities than ever. And the payoffs of that path aren't what they seem for many people. And throughout history, people traded money for leisure, right? It is only recently in the past two, three hundred years that people continuously worked through all of adulthood. Part of that was an economic necessity of industrialization, right? So if you're in the 50s and 60s, you weren't earning these crazy excess incomes beyond what you're you needed right most people were building their lives around a single working parent now people are earning far beyond what they actually need but they've priced in a lot of luxuries in their mental model of the world as needs right and so um, my book is really a way of like saying are these things true do we need all these things how do we think about our lives if you are going to reject the default path or at least say it's way too simple How do you go about sort of building your own new mental story, your own movie of how you see your life going to unfold in the future? But I also want to balance out the
0: industrialization and kind of the last, as you said, like 100 years or so has bring about a significant amount of abundance, right? Is no one was 200 years ago building their life around leisure, Being on the family farm at that time was about sustenance and survival. It wasn't like, oh, I just grew some food and it was all wonderful. And then I sat back and leaned back. What
1: did they do when crops weren't in season? They were building the
0: farm. They were hunting. They were making clothes. This was not at the time. This wasn't some magical time that was previous.
1: Yeah, but we have pretty good evidence that people were not working 260 days a year, five days a week in this like structured rhythmic work week, right? That that's very new. No, I 100% I will agree the structured rhythmic that came out of
0: the Industrial Revolution. But what I'm I think we sometimes romanticize the
1: past in terms of how. Well, I'm not romanticizing it. I'm right. I'm arguing that. The base conception of life was as you work enough to meet your needs and then you're done. Mm -hmm. So like Max Weber writes about this in his book in the late 1800s, like the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. He said the hardest thing with these people that were injecting capital into building businesses was overcoming this traditionalist mindset, right? And this traditional mindset was like, okay, I've made enough to like meet my needs for the month. I'm going home. And it was actually like a serious problem. People would meet around this. They would come up with solutions. They're like, how do we structure this such that we keep them working? Because if we keep them working, we can keep the factories running, keep building this industrial economy, right? Mm -hmm. And so my, my only argument is like, this is a new behavior. And over time, we started to conceive ourselves as a work, not a life. We fit in our life-work-life balance around work, right? We started to see work as the center of life. And I think this is so deeply embedded in our culture and society that we don't even see it anymore. Like, if an American is wandering around the middle of the day on a Wednesday, you're wondering, what are they doing? Right. Your parents' generation is going to be very concerned about you. What are you doing? Why aren't you working? No, it's funny because there was an, it was an interesting thing to your point with
0: the, I was looking at some recent research by uh, uh, Nick Bloom from Stanford on the work from home data and how the day is becoming restructured, right? Like the day that was going on with, and I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like the activities was with the typical nine to five, the non-working was, okay, you might work out a little bit. You... Do things on the phone, uh, on, on the phone versus now it's okay. People are running errands during the middle of the day. There's a spike now at and I did this myself, right? Post kids going to bed, there's a lot more work that's being done at, at that time. You know, uh, recording a podcast in the middle of the day, like we are. So I think that the schedule and structure has been a lot more upended because I think the nature of collaboration, especially now has changed. To your point, when the primary structure of that work was factories, right, was, you know, manual labor, it was a lot more of that, okay, how do we just, you know, one more one more second, one more hour was directly relational to how it worked versus, and that, you're right, I think that that kind of went forward. And what is interesting now with not only the, you know, the Internet, I think, was was the first step, which was more the scaling of communication. But now, I mean, I think it's one of the things that's interesting is your whole, you know, you've been very transparent about your journey as with self-publishing. And so first you have the communication so but now just the tools of, say, self-publishing, I think that's something interesting to talk about as well. But now with generative AI and productivity and like I use ChatGPT five or six times a day. That that becomes a whole different type of scaling mechanism that, again, we have to look at how we are organizing, to your point, our lives around it and can do a different kinds of balance, right?
1: Yeah, I I think the way I like to look at it is step back and try to ask what's really happening. I don't have a strong take and like, this is how things should be. I think those kind of conversations, like we should be working in an office, it's nonsense. You have to observe what people are doing and the behaviors people are making and the incentives and the changes in the economy and and say like, okay, what is the reality? The reality is we have a much wider spectrum of different ways of structuring work, organizations, employees, and we don't have these mass narratives anymore. We so crave this like mono narrative of like, this is how the world works. This is how you work. This is how you structure your life. That sort of worked for previous generations, but it was mostly because people just didn't have as much information about the alternatives in the past. There's always been weirdos experimenting around the edges. The thing is now, like, all those people are, like, sharing their recipes and their paths and, like, how they're doing it and all these things. So more people are becoming interested. The thing is, like, it's not going to slow down it's just going to get weirder. It's going to get more complex. There's going to be more variables people are mixing on. And unfortunately, this puts more of a burden on individuals. There's less cohesive collective stories that we can sort of map our reality to. And it's going to lead to more fragmentation of communities, of work, of different ways of like even where you live, right? Austin, which is sort of the topic of your podcast has emerged as this location where podcasting and comedy is happening and sort of an online writing community as well. That is very emergent in the last three years and people are finding each other through the internet and deciding to go there and doing all sorts of experiments. That's going to continue to happen, right? So, but from that,
0: I think it is less fractious and more, just as you described, more Creating new communities and and them coming together. I mean, that was one of the. I did see that same kind of emergence happening. and I found it really interesting, right? And it was there was a tweet that you did that I I thought was really funny. But it was something I think about, which was I have here is, is everyone starting a podcast, or do you just live in Austin, right? And you have everything from you know the biggies, Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman, Tim Ferriss, you know Ryan Holiday, to you know smaller indie podcasts. And but it's at a level you talk about like the, you know uh, David Parels here like the the writing community. What I I also find interesting about the community of podcasters and writers here is it's and I got to come up with a better name for it. But I'm I'm using the word think fluencers. and I, there's if anyone has a better name please let me know. That you know labori is another one is. It's, it is more philosophical. It is deeper questions. It is scientific. When you think about like, like like Friedman, it's not pop culture that we're, that people here are talking about. It's, it is deeper questions. And I'm curious like why that has become emergent here. I'm trying to kind of put my finger on it of what's the cause, what's driving that. And how that then interacts with the broader innovation community. I think it's a good thing. I'm just trying to see where where those intersections are.
1: Yeah, I think these things have always been happening, right? You can see scenes like in Concord with like Emerson, Thoreau, Lou, Marie Alcott, Hawthorne, all these people that were like floating in and out in Concord in the 1800s. You can look at scenes in Paris, right? The existentialists in Europe after World War II. There's always been these scenes. And I think they're going to increasingly emerge because as more people realize they're on their own individual weird path, they need to find others that are on a tangential path, right? I think one of the hard things about leaving full-time employment for me was that I didn't have people around me that understood the challenges and like curiosities I had, right? And so I felt really alone. That made me seek out other people and is increasingly led both me and my wife, which are we're both exploring these weird paths. It's like we need to be around these people because it will spend less time defending ourselves. We'll spend less time like feeling bad about ourselves because we're not like keeping up with the Joneses who are playing a different game than us and things like that. So I think these are going to continue to emerge and accelerate. There's so many communities like this, right? Like if you're a YouTuber, you go to L.A right there's certain kinds of music there's certain cities that are great for music this has always happened and austin's always been a scene city right it had people who were like weird and pushing the edges of living in the 1800s who like really wanted to explore and be an adventurer it had the music scene right? It has the comedy scene, it has the podcasting scene. I think the simple reason is it's just weather and cost. Like it's just cheaper to live in Austin than most other places. So it attracts more people who especially are at the beginning of their journeys and don't have predictable incomes. I agree with everything that you said. And it's interesting because since so much of
0: the particular, diving into this particular scene, right, which is about in many ways, masculine case, right? Like you write essays, you do podcasts, you have a book, right? So that's about the, in one sense, your community is global and you're talking to people that are a lot outside of Austin. So where does that physical component come in? And this is a broad question we have. We, we were just talking about like the the work from home versus the, you don't in, get in, in person. And it's a question that even we have in Austin because there's this constant thing about, well, everything needs to be downtown but we're expanding in kind of a multi-hubs you've got stuff up in Georgetown which is you know 30 minutes or so outside of downtown so how does this all kind of play together so as you think about the the scene and the people that you're interacting with while your audience and everything is global how do you feel like the the, the physical and in-person relates to that
1: I think it sort of builds on itself I think the reason I moved there is cuz I had I knew from online that were there and doing similar things. And I had lived in enough communities around people doing similar things that I knew that was important. The other places people like this are living were literally too expensive for me to live, namely New York and San Francisco and L.A. There just aren't really many other creative hubs of places where people doing these things are. And you don't need many people. You need like three or four friends I think in Austin, there's many more people doing these weird paths. There's like the fitness influencer scene, podcasters, there's comedy, there's online writers, there's sort of like political thinkers. There's just like a lot of weirdos in Austin. And Austin's always attracted weirdos, right? And that's always changed the type of weirdo that comes to Austin. I think in some ways it's temporary. I think it's probably not as connected to innovation. Locally, as it could be. And I think a big reason for that is a lot of the people I hang out with we're not legible to people that think like investors and think like full-time jobs and think about organizations and infrastructure and city politics. We're not legible to them because like, for one, city politics orients around like full-time homeowners and taxpayers and business owners, Right they don't care about like a seasonal person who's coming to the city to like podcast and experiment and build stuff but i think arguably they should i think increasingly people who are creatives are going to be talent like they're going to be talent attractors in the places they go right i think a lot of credit for comedy goes to joe rogan and when you're thinking about a city and investment, you can't actually price in the value of that. Right. Because Joe Rogan might build a comedy club. He might like cultivate a scene that is not going to show itself until 10 years. That scene is then going to be like interesting enough that people are going to say, well, I want to move there because that's like another interesting thing and makes it a viable city for me. And it mixes with all these other elements that are extremely hard to value, right? And I think this is sort of a new era of thinking about like cities, municipalities, governments, all these things.
0: I mean, the fundamental thesis of like Richard Florida is the, you know, the creative class. And I think that if he was to update the book, you would probably add YouTubers and podcasters. Like that wasn't, when he, you know, wrote it, that wasn't a part of it. And I think that there's that element to your point, which is the attractiveness, the, as you said, the second and third order effects of like, wow, there's a major comedy scene here that, you know, Rogan kind of sparked the boom on. And I think one question though that I have is we kind of have this ephemeral connection into the innovation, which is kind of the one you talk about, which is like, okay, it, it attracts people in, but I wonder if there is, and I don't think you need the, the direct connection in the way that, as you said, like, okay, you've got the seasonal podcaster and the couple was like, okay, I, I don't think about full-time job. It's not going to be hired by this, but how do we more think about it from the melting pot and the ideas flowing? And, and can we make that kind of connectivity? Because I think the ideas of these six or seven people, you know, that are floating around Getting into to be able to spark and act as muses. I mean, one of the things that I've said privately, and I'll you know I'll, I'll say it publicly. You know, is I think some of these accelerators need a artist in residence because as you think about the how much creativity and design matters for when we think about UX and how people interact and just having someone there who is a person who thinks differently about it is, I think, a good thing to have on hand. And it's not like you said, it's not full-time employment. It's not the same way that you're thinking. But having, as you said, creatives, whatever term you want to use, who think differently to be able to inject into innovation, I think, is a good thing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's very hard to do it intentionally in a top-down way. Oh, 100%. As soon as you start putting like middle managers or bureaucrats in a room, they're like, let's come up with an application. and We'll make all these requirements because we don't want anyone to take advantage of it. And basically, the best thing they could do is like give somebody like free, just say, hey, you can use this. You you don't have to fill out anything. You can use this space. You can like you get this grant and it, you can get approved for this grant in like a week or something, right? And all those things tend to come back and pay off over time, but you can't present to your boss that you have some payoff and you thought through the program and you have this measurement of how it's performing and all these things. And so, yeah, it's really hard to think about these things. I think these scenes happen despite the incompetence of local communities and like governments. Right. And it'll move like I don't see it. I think a lot of like the creator podcasting scene will ultimately move on from Austin because they're not really tied to the place. And yeah, it's sort of like it's a place that's good for right now because it's cheap. But ultimately, it's like an urban sprawl. Uh, It's a very car centric city. It doesn't appear to be becoming a city of the future, except in terms of like just building more housing than most other people. Like, I, I honestly think just because housing hasn't rose as rapidly as most other cities, like, that's why people are in Austin. So,
0: two things I want to unpack from that. So, one, I agree on the top down measures. And because most of the time, especially when you do any sort of top down measure in this case, you're pointing in a specific direction. And 99% of the time, if you, that direction's wrong and you end up in a different place. And the key is always how do you create an environment, and who you are in the situation is the is the difficult part, right? Is to create creative collisions, right, and being able to set set the stage for the for the, then the organic stuff to happen. And you're right, that's difficult, but it's always better to say like, I want to go this way, I want to go that way, and we're gonna make this happen. I, I want to unpack the statement that you just made because I want to know know what your definition is. This you said you don't see Austin turning into a, a, a city of the future what's your definition of that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's like very speculative. So maybe I wouldn't boldly say that. I just think, yeah, it's hard to know like what the city of the future is. I think a lot of the places I hang out are like downtown Austin, right? Is it going to become like more bikeable, more easily navigatable via like transportation or like as you get older and have kids, like, is it just harder? You sort of have to move to the suburbs. You have to spend more of your time in a car, right? And I don't think it's worth designing a city around like people like me, but I want more time. I want those creative collisions. And that's sort of the environment I'm seeking, right? So what I'm saying is I just don't see it as like the city for me. And I I know a lot of people I hang out with are also like, yeah, we'll eventually leave Austin. Like it, it's hard to find people that are committed to it for 10, 20 years. And this is what Richard Florida wrote about it as well. People are going to move between these nodes rather than put roots in. And I think this just continues a trend of like placelessness among like knowledge workers, creative people for decades. Yeah, and in some cases
0: could be very scary for San Francisco because it was it has been the place and which is they've been losing people recently. And so the question is, they've, they've been able to maintain, if you look at VC funding recently, that they're still really high despite some of the population loss. It'll be, it'll be really interesting. I do want to kind of circle back to the book because I did have you know two kind of questions. How would you break out the difference between kind of your definition of the pathless path and entrepreneurship? Or is it two sides of the same coin?
1: Yeah, I think one of my contentions is that most people in the modern world are on a pathless path. It's just that they're sort of running a script of the previous generations in their head that is very simple, right? And that can give people comfort. But for the most part, think about anyone in a job these days, especially under the age of 50, maybe above the age of 50, they have like pensions or something or just sort of set. Most people who are young, cannot expect loyalty from any company, right? Which means they have to be thinking about their skills, their network. They have to be thinking about the next step. Even if it's within the company, you need to be like campaigning, promoting yourself, all these things, right? And so the, the only thing that differentiates those people from thinking they're on a pathless path to a default path is like the story that like, oh, this is the safe thing. This is secure. This is smart. But increasingly, as people face their first layoff, people face their first pay cut, people face like challenges at work or like don't have opportunities for promotion, they start to realize, oh, crap, like this isn't guaranteed. I need to work for this. I need to make changes. I need to keep experimenting. And so it's been really interesting. I've had a lot of people reach out from people in jobs and say, this book actually really helped me. It's making me think different about how I'm thinking about all these things in the context of a job. And so widening that out, like entrepreneurship also has scripts, right? Raise money from a venture capital firm, exit by selling your company or going public right? That is a very long, specific journey with people have an understanding conceptually and psychologically about how it's supposed to feel, who they're supposed to network with, where they're supposed to live, how much money they're supposed to raise, what success looks like. And a lot of people get stuck on that path too. So I've talked to people that have made hundreds of millions of dollars on following that VC-backed startup path. And they're totally just like, I hated the last 10 years of my life. I'm like a shriveled version of myself. Like I need to recover now. I need to figure out what went wrong. I need to figure out how to avoid this in the future. And even people I've talked to who are in the midst of that path, they've they've like raised multiple rounds. I've talked to founders and they're like, man, I hate this. Like I just wanted to like tinker and experiment, right? So I think what I often urge people to do is, Really just figure out like who are you? What are your skills? What actually drives you? This is incredibly hard, right? Right. And it takes years. And it might mean that you're not going to be financially successful. I think one thing I learned early on is I don't have hustle grind energy, or at least I didn't have it in my 30s when I got started on this path. I can't just like grind seven days a week, crush things, push things out launch things with lots of energy and go after massive goals. The first 3 to 4 years of my path, I didn't make more than 50 grand a year. I made much less than that. And the reason was I realized I needed to work on myself. I needed to work on my self-awareness. I really needed to take things slow. I was in a desperate search for actual work I liked doing and felt like I could doing over the long term. And that's just hard. So no matter what your path you're on, even the path I'm on of like self-employment, there are scripts you can follow, but like, are the scripts actually yours? Is it the game you can keep playing? My only goal is to keep playing this game. Sounds simple, actually incredibly hard in practice. I think there's an interesting thing
0: that keeps happening with the default paths taking over language. So... I've seen this in the word, in a, we use the word innovation a lot. And, and even in the case, we just talked about entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is so much broader than VC-backed startups. But to the point that you just made, if you generally say the word entrepreneurship out there, the default path of VC-backed startup takes is the thought process that immediately clicks in for everybody. But the amount of small businesses that are opened up, solo, you know, lifestyle businesses, all of these things that don't fit out in that. I don't remember the percentage, but I want to say it's some, it's like one or 2% of all like small businesses are actually of the VC back. Now, the, you know, those are the ones that do create more wealth. Like there are lots of different things. They go into those and they make the headlines and there's reasons that they occupy our brain more and, and take over the lexicon. And it's the same thing that we... When, when I use the term innovation, I want it to mean something more than startups. Like, yes, we do have lots of startup conversations and I've had VCs on the show, but I want to talk about large companies. I want to talk about things in different ways, right? We want to think about innovation broader in, than that concept. And so these default paths just take over the lexicon, right? They take over these words that we say and we immediately jump into, well, I mean this or I mean that. I'm like, nope. It didn't actually mean that. Being a solopreneur, being self-employed, being an entrepreneur doesn't necessarily mean the 10-year VC-backed journey.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been profitable every year I've done this, right? In some years, that profit was like 500. I like to joke that I've made billions more than Uber, which is true. It's a a rounding error, right? But um, yeah, billions more than Uber, billions more than Lyft, billions more than WeWork. Right? I've been profitable every year. Now, sometimes my business profit above my spending was like $12 in my first couple of years. But I didn't lose money and I didn't have to invest money for the future. Right? And I think this is a really hard thing people have to navigate. This is why people seek out those paths. We all want to be saved, we want things to be easier, we want other people to respect us, and we want people to love us. If you pursue a path like mine, what are you risking? You're risking your parents being disappointed in you. You're risking your spouse losing faith in you. You're ri- risking your friends thinking you're a loser and a failure. It's incredible the things that people say to people that leave their past because they're projecting their insecurities on, onto you. And I've experienced all of this. And it feels terrible. And it's what's inspired me to write, to kind of like put out there, here's why what I'm doing. Here's why I think it matters. Here's why I'm doing this. And the thing is, like, I'm not building a work. I'm building a life. Work is one of the elements in that. I want to be a great father. I want to be a great husband. I want to be a member of my community. I want to be a good writer. I also want to make enough money to afford that. But work is not central. And our culture prioritizes and centers work above all else because the shitty dad who makes 500 grand a year is praised by almost everyone in his community. That's just the world we live in because we have elevated money and work and status above many other things. And so if you want to live differently, you need to know that you, you might be happier with your path, but you're not going to get the respect or appreciation you deserve from other people so
0: give me a little rope with this question here and trying to understand is part of the problem that we have the default path in the scripts at all or is it the default path has somehow gone wrong it's a specific question here so the timing here right is you know oppenheimer just came out right and i haven't seen it yet so but given that it just came out there was a graph that i saw where the average age of the person on the Manhattan Project was 31. Like the idea that a 31 year old would today would go and do that and be able to do something of that magnitude. And I think Alpenheimer himself was like 35 or you know, relatively young in this. And my thought was, they were probably, all those people were probably on the default paths of their careers, right? They were on these, these kind of standard paths. My question then is, if when I take that as the example, and so the bracket of the forties, is it okay? So was that unique, or did and the path has gone wrong since then, or is it the default path themselves?
1: Yeah, I th- I think, I mean, you can look at statistics of this. If you went into a PhD program seventy five years ago, you could almost guarantee that you're going to become a professor now you can almost guarantee that you're not going to be a professor right so the problem is not like is the path good or bad is it working is it not working it's like you can't expect what you think you're going after anymore there are just we've had a proliferation of people exploring these paths and that's mostly downstream of prosperity and good trends and like people miss this but The reality is like everyone's not going to be a professor. (laughs) It's the same thing in law. Like 75 years ago, if you ended up at a law firm, you like hang out for like five to six years, you're going to be promoted to partner at like 29, right? That's because the baby boom population had like no one above them. It's funny. I have this essay called the boomer blockade. If you look at every decade of life for the boomers, they were the biggest proportion of the workforce. Including now, it might have changed in the last three years, because of retirements, but including now, meaning that they were the biggest proportion of the workforce in the early 2000s, in the later chapter of their career. And they were the first generation that, like, sort of liked their work. It was this knowledge work. Work has gotten a lot better. They've decided they just want to stay. Mandatory retirements have been canceled they're staying much longer they're not giving up their positions i mean we see this in all aspects of life our president is 80 our political leaders are in their 70s like they're not they like what they're doing and they're not giving up so like the path has changed and like this is all i'm saying is like figure out what game you're playing figure out the rules figure out the current reality and like decide what whether you want to play if you don't want to play that you're going to have to carve your own path Carving your own path is hard, proceed at your own risk.
0: Well, what it sounds like then is, and I, I would agree with this because I think you're not the only one saying this and seeing evidence, right? Is that we created in the 30s, 40s, 50s, these track, generalized track structures. You said you could go to the PhD program, you were going to be a professor. You went to the good law school. Like there were these very, str- I went to a company, I was there for 40 years and that persisted through... X period of time through the 80s or or whatever. And there was a shift that occurred at pick some magic line, right? Whatever it was. And it's
1: all demographics and growth rates. We got an older population and growth slowed.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Growth has been slowing down, right? There's like what happened in 1971, right? Is that for whatever reason, the the great stagnation is continuing to to slow down with, you know, TFP, uh, uh, total factor productivity going down but we maintain the tracks without realizing that they're not, as you said, they're not working so much, right? They're not, these, these standard tracks these default paths.
1: Yeah. This ain't your grandfather's default path. (laughs) Yes.
0: That's great. I like that. But what's interesting is that at the same time, you're starting to have this ability to, I guess, for lack of a better term, fund the other ways you've got. The Teal Fellowships, you've got, you know, Tyler Cowen's Emergent Ventures, this ability to actually say, because one of the things that that struck me when I first read, was reading the book, that I, I was kind of pushing back a little bit was, you were talking about, you know, okay, you were at McKinsey, and you were doing these kind of small experiments, you're doing it, I'm like, okay, fine, so... What that sounds to me is I have to have a really good paying job to do these small experiments because I have to have the the backing, right? I have to have some sort of nest egg to be able to do this because maybe I have a house, maybe I have a mortgage, maybe I'm kind of already at this place. But we're starting to see, and I kind of have my own counter example in my head, is that we're starting to see infrastructure being built to help do this so that you can do it. I mean, the, 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 for those who don't know, like the Teal Fellowship is leave college for a year for $100,000 and work on something. And it's been amazing that people have actually gone through that. Now, it's, it is much more along the classic, you know, VC-backed startup path, but, you know, the emergent ventures and other things are, are not. So there's starting to be this infrastructure of going like, yeah, do weird things. And you have opportunity to not starve when you do the weird things.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right, right? And I think it's funny. People always think like I made a lot of money at McKinsey. I made 50 grand at McKinsey. I had no savings after I left McKinsey and went to business school. I went went into debt, 70 grand. I didn't have family support for paying for that. I didn't become like debt-free until I was, I don't know, 29. But yeah, it's... I eventually did make really good money and was able to save like 50 grand. And for me, that was like, okay, it's time to leave. What I think I was seeing with the experiments on the side, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is the future. I love hanging out on the Internet. I love experimenting in this world. This actually is a better game for me. I want to experiment for at least a year and figure out if this is a game worth playing. I think like what Tyler Cowen and others are seeing is like the same thing is the internet's changing everything. Work is definitely going to be weirder and different and more gigified in 30 years. And like, people just don't like this. (laughs) Like, it's happening. I'm maybe influencing it a little, very, very tiny. But like, it's happening. I'm observing it. It makes perfect sense that the internet is going to continue to like decentralize paths and create more opportunities and create more possibilities. This is going to keep going. And so for me, it was like I wanted to get on this wave because I figured even if I can make like break even like 40 grand a year, I'm going to be so much happier and thriving on this path. That's what I figured out in the first couple of years of quitting my job. Like me and my wife, were, she left her job right after I met her. She had, she had zero savings, like no net worth. She didn't have a robust economy like the U.S. Like the U.S. makes like average workers rich. Most other countries don't do that. And we just sort of decided we want to build our life around doing creative things. We have this ability to bat on the internet and ride that. Like I think some things may pay off. Like I'm seeing it with my book now. It's far beyond my expectations. That's all the internet. But the only reason I got that possibility is because I stayed in the game for six years. And so... I don't have a strong like stance. I don't have like a belief like the economy should look like this. I just know it is changing, and I think from my book, like I've had thirty thousand plus people read it. Like people are saying, yes, this resonates with my experience, and like I'm heading in this direction too. Thanks for at least making me feel not so crazy. The whole point on on what the economy should look like—it's back to our first
0: conversation on the top-down versus the organic creative collisions—is it's changing into something and we'll see what it looks like and we'll predict it we'll see it and i think it'll be fascinating to see and and i do think at least at the moment and this is kind of as we're hard i think that austin is turning into something and i think that that's and it continues to fascinate me all of the different things i mean it, we have everything from rockets to cpg to electric vehicles to a comedy scene to a podcasting scene and i just want to keep it all like pushing it all together and seeing how they can all intersect and so i think that kind of brings a great kind of point is kind of always end with the same question paul what's next austin
1: i actually do think storytellers creators youtubers instagrammers they're sort of underrated Because they are storytellers and they're storytellers that can link those different worlds. I think creative people are very natural. at shifting between ideas and crowds and groups. And yeah, I think for now like Austin has been able to cultivate a scene around that. And I think it will continue to emerge and grow. What will it look like in 10 years? I mean, the history of Austin is that scenes have always emerged and sort of faded away. So What is the next scene? I don't know. How do you keep cultivating that environment? Is it going to become too expensive to nurture and cultivate those scenes? I don't know. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. It's the only city in the US right now that's actually serious about building housing by a big margin. So I think that solves a lot of problems and gives them a lot of room to even not get it right over the coming decade. But yeah, It'll be interesting to watch it emerge and uh, excited to stay part of it for as long as I can.
0: Fantastic. Paul Miller, thanks for joining the Austin Next podcast. Thank you, Jason. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.